The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop wishing your cat's brain was more complex and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 251 with guest Roger Sessions, recorded live Thursday, June 21st, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, bring the ASP.NET Masterclass on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who's still looking for the guy he sent to pick up his iPhone for him, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin here for another show. Another show, Richard. It seems like we do these every day, almost. Well, at least twice a week anyway, but you're right. We've been doing uh, a lot of work lately, uh, putting all these shows together, and it's been a heck of a lot of fun. I like the diversity we've got these days. Yeah, it truly is. And great feedback uh, from the fans. It keeps coming in. If you want a piece of swag, send us some email at .net rocks at franklins.net. And Richard, I know you got an email to read, but before that, let's get to my segment called Better Know a Framework. Yes. That really is the freakiest music I've ever heard. <laughs> you created that, I presume. I don't know what I was thinking. I just... Yeah, I'm always astounded, Mr. Franklin, just how weird and how diverse of music you can create. Well, you know, I have a surreal side. What can I say? We're stuck (laughs) with it now, so. I'm not complaining. All right. Well, today's class is the File System Watcher class, which is in system.io, system.io.filesystemwatcher. And this listens, quote unquote, to the file system change notifications that the Windows operating system will, uh, will send out. When things change, when a directory or a file in a directory changes. So uh, the Windows operating system has this event notification stuff built into it where let's say you want to watch a file directory and see when a file lands in that directory and if it's of the, you know, has the right file size or the file name or whatever. And you're going to use that as an input to something like an XML file or something or an MP3 file or whatever the file is. What you'd have to do before this notification engine was constructed is sit there in a loop and just pull and watch and see and see and pull. But now what happens is the system does that. It it copies the file, so it's in a good position to say, hey, whoever's listening and whoever wants to know, this file is now there, this directory has changed, whatever. So it's a lot more efficient than uh, previous operating systems. I believe this uh, is an NT4 thing. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And and you're right. I mean, polling is always bad. Yeah. And, and the reality, of course, is that it's it's still down there, still watching the messages. It's just doing it a lot more politely. Yeah, exactly. So in the Microsoft.net framework now, there's this class that you can use, and you can set up events. And uh, uh, just uh, there's a, the thing about the file system watcher is that there's a whole lot of filters that you can use to set it up. 
uh, the notify filter property basically has a bunch of uh, constants that you can or together, like for last access, last write time, or file name, and know when these changes, or directory name, know when these changes have occurred. And the key is to get those right. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> since there's a lot of options, you know, you, mu- you need to play around with that because the worst thing that can happen is you expect it to fire and it doesn't, or it does repeatedly, which is another problem. So you got to get that you got to get that list right, but there's plenty of good comments. Even in the online help, there's plenty of good uh, examples of how to do that. So there you go. Our class for the day, system.io.filesystemwatcher. Nice. Nice. So on to that email, Richard. All righty. Let me read you an email from John Cornell. It says, Hi, guys. Thanks, of course, for the show. It has been regularly humbling and informing me now since at least episode 110. You know, I could say the same thing. It's been humbling and informative for me as well. Absolutely. You know, I I would like to point out to the listeners, when we say wow on the show, it's usually because we're blown away. We mean it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We get surprised by our, our guests and even our emails on a regular basis. And now I have to put up with being humbled on a bi-weekly basis. Well, that was my grumble, my coding ego taking a regular beating, but that really is a good thing. Well, okay. Anyway, thanks for the show on Sharp Develop. I used it regularly in a previous role for over a year when I worked as a consultant for a large U.S. vendor, who shall remain nameless, who were too cheap to supply me with Visual Studio or an MSDN subscription. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It was so nice to hear a DNR show where I could mentally say, hey, I knew that already. Ah. More often than not, a very rare thing indeed. Anyway, I encourage developers to check out the source code to Sharp Develop. It supplies some very nice examples on Gang of Four patterns and really initiated my obsession with them. Oh, well, there you go. And I didn't know that. I didn't even think of that, that, yeah, this is an open source project. You can look at the code that builds this development environment. Yep, and it's done well. And I'm and I'm really pleased that people like the whole sharp develop thing because it, it that's a little off track, you know. Yeah. Why I, I I was worried I was going to get email from folks saying why are you even talking about this when there's Visual Studio? What else needs to be there? Right. And uh, John goes on to say that of course leads me to thank you for the four DNR TV episodes with John Paul Budhu on design patterns. And we're not done yet. And we're not done yet. I just saw John Paul. Yeah. Something I have been impatiently waiting for since you promised it over a year ago. Yeah, well. However, again, a horribly humbling experience. Seeing Jean-Paul code a block of simple DB code, then laughingly state, I'm sure everyone can see heaps of ways to improve this one, yeah. sent me groaning to the ego check booth. Dude, you and me both, man. I have to, <laughs> I have to actually make conversation in that show and say things like, cool. <laughs> when I really don't have any idea what he's talking about. so He's so fast. It's lucky I enjoy that kind of thing, and I realize I'm lucky to have discovered you guys. You can cheer now. Yay. <laughs> Thanks again. <laughs> there was a sincere cheer for you. Yeah, very Yay. sincere. Go, Yay. guys. Yay. Woo-hoo. Go, Dynamite Rocks. Woot. <laughs> woot, woot. Woot. Oh man, how how's Roger Sessions going to tolerate this silliness? I don't know. I got to read the last line. Leave me the read the last line. Thanks again. And are either of you planning to make TechEd in Australia? Regards, John Cornell. Hmm. So he's down in Sydney, which is where TechEd Australia is. And John, no, we're not coming to TechEd Australia. And you know why? Nobody invited us. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool to go, actually. I'd love to go to Australia. And they do Australia and New Zealand together. They're basically back-to-back. So if we were to go down there, we'd go to both places. And it'd be fun to do some live shows, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I'd like I'd actually like to do a show from the farm, from your farm in New Zealand. Oh, uh, yeah, I have a family uh, the family dairy farm outside of Tauranga. We, we you know, stand by a cow so that you, every once in a while you just hear this. Okay. You know? You, you know, you're a little strange, Mr. Frank. I am sorry. But look. Listeners, Australia, New Zealand, if you would like .NET Rocks in Australia and New Zealand, let Microsoft know. Sure. We'd come down in a second. It'd be a lot of fun. Yep, that's their call. You bet. And that's my email, Carl. Well, okay. We don't need to do the uh, Code Camp music anymore because the Code Camps are on the website at .NET That's right. Or at least they will be soon. And we didn't get any new ones this week. 
And uh, we didn't get any new ones, you're right. So we just want to also uh, just reiterate that if you're looking to move to New York City for a year and you want to live rent-free in an apartment in Manhattan and work on some really cool .NET stuff, you need to check out this announcement and offer uh, from Infusion at shrinkster.com slash kh6. Awesome. And that's all I got to say about that. Hey, Richard, um, before we get Roger on here, you know that we're renovating the studios here, Pop yes, Studios. Sir. And uh, it's been interesting because we're coming down to the wire to the end of the renovation. The air conditioning is in. Nice. And it's a multi-zone, you know, on-the-roof kind of HVAC system. So no noise. No noise. Yep. It's very, very quiet. And there's uh, three zones. And one of the zones is our computer closet. So we're going to be nice and cool in there. Ah, I like that a lot. And the other zone is out in the studio. Well, anyway, we've been putting up this um adhe- uh we've been putting up this soundproofing material on the ceiling which requires a serious adhesive. <laughs> yes, the glue week. Yes, so this, this is the kind the of glue, glue that if you're just in the same room when the can is opened, you'll pass out. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's kind of glue that, you know, well, never mind. It's a so what would what was happening last week is we would come in to do a show and they'd be gluing in there and of course the AC is sucking it all up and redistributing over here across the hall and we're like passing out so we actually had to reschedule some things but anyway you can track the progress of the studio renovation at uh, photos.pwop.com if you're interested and it's not done yet but you know you can really see the progress uh, how how it's uh, coming there all right, Richard, let's introduce our esteemed guest. Roger Sessions is the CTO of Object Watch. His Object Watch newsletter is now on its 13th year of publication. He's written six books, including Software Fortresses, Modeling Enterprise Architectures, and many articles. He is on the board of directors of the International Association of Software Architects, editor-in-chief of Perspectives of the International Association of Software Architects, and a Microsoft-recognized MVP in enterprise architecture. He holds multiple patents in both software and enterprise architecture process. He has given talks at more than 100 conferences around the world, covering a wide range of topics in enterprise architecture. Roger's especially interested in the problem of complexity in enterprise architectures, and he has developed a mathematically grounded process for creating enterprise architectures called Simple Iterative Partitions, or SIP. Welcome, Roger. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for uh, bringing a little bit of class to our otherwise uh, lowly show. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've had known Roger for quite some time. In fact, we worked together many, many moons ago, back in the dot-com boom days, and uh, was fascinated by his approach to architectures because they were quite technology agnostic. Uh, it didn't really matter what tools you were developing in; they were the te- the uh, modeling styles and approaches were going to apply. Yeah, in fact, I think that's a general observation of architecture. Anything that's architecture and is specific to a particular technology is kind of an oxymoron. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that's that that mis- the best architecture is abstracted away from that. Um, Roger, you've been around in this industry for a long time. Many of our software developer audience may or may not know who you are. Um, give us some of the highlights of your, you know, the favorite things that you've done and and talked about, some of the things you're best known for. And I expect you to admit to the Corba. <laughs> oh, no, you have to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> um, well, the Corba goes back um, uh, to my days. Actually, my first, uh, I, I really got started in the industry well, even going back further than that, I had a master's degree in computer science from the University of Pennsylvania. I worked at University of Pennsylvania and a few other places. Probably the first best-known place that I worked at was Software Arts, which was the company that produced VisiCalc. And um, I was very involved with um, both IT systems and some product development there. And then wow. moved on to Prime Computer. And um, at Prime is... Um, was a company in the Massachusetts area. Worked there for a while in, in their computer divi- in their computer vision division. Very involved in um, uh, object-oriented databases in that general area. My my background was pretty much always in databases, but I was um, into the object-oriented aspect of things. And uh, from there, went to IBM, and IBM is where Richard um, 
reminds me I was very involved in the CORBA architecture, the uh, Common Object Request Broker architecture, which was really, in my view, the first of the technologies that tried to do what we would today call distributed components. Right. So really the birth of the distributed component area. When Microsoft came out with DCOM, that was essentially Microsoft's response to the CORBA architecture. CORBA was owned by the Object Management Group, which was a large consortium of companies, uh, one of the prominent members of which was IBM, which was my involvement with it. I was basically loaned to the OMG to work on their object persistence specifications. Now, I never had to work with CORBA, but it was my understanding that this was a sort of way that you could um, interoperate with different platforms, especially between Microsoft and IBM platforms. Is that- uh, well, the plat- platform is an interesting um, word here because uh, it depends on what you mean by a platform. If you mean uh, a, a software platform, uh, that really wasn't true. You could interoperate with anybody who is using a CORBA platform. Now, the CORBA platform itself could be uh, supported on many different platforms. You could make, in, in that, you know, in that in that way of looking at things, you could argue that Windows is an interoperability platform because Windows runs on many different hardware platforms. So to simplify, I guess I could say it was easy. It was the way to get uh, Windows to talk to IBM mainframes, perhaps. It was a way to get a CORBA application that ran on a Windows platform to interoperate with a CORBA application that ran on an IBM platform. Fair enough, yeah. So, But they both had to be CORBA uh, applications, which meant that there was a whole CORBA API that they were dependent upon and were right. expected to use. So it's quite different. Uh, it's often painted as a precursor to the uh, to the web services, but that's really not an accurate comparison because in web services, there's no expectation that there's a shared understanding of what the API looks like between the applications right. and the interoperability layer that's expected to be a something that's dependent upon the vendor. In the CORBA architecture, there was. There was assumption, this assumption that the application was using a particular API, and if it was using that API, then there was interoperability between that application and some other application using the same API. That seems to be the whole trick of architecture, is getting the, the level of granularity right. Because not, you know, nothing's perfect, but you're always, I imagine, looking for the trade-off between some, you know, easy to uh, wrap your mind around uh, higher level fu- uh, functionality and lower level control. Well, there's a lot of challenges in architecture. Um, the particular challenge you're talking about, granularity, is I would say a important challenge of what we call application architecture, which is quite different than, say, enterprise architecture, which is the area that I'm uh, spending most of my time studying today. Mm. But in the application architecture, exactly right. You know, if you confuse what is an object with what is a component with what is a web service, uh, and you try to apply rules that are appropriate for objects to web services, you're going to have a lot of problems. In yeah. the same way that you know, the kind of analogy going back historically was when people took all of their COM objects and just wrapped them with DCOM in the Microsoft space. So enterprise architecture then is different. How? Well, enterprise architecture is, oh, let me tell you how I got into enterprise architecture in the first place. First of all, I came to it a little bit differently than most people. Most people approach it from the business side, whereas I came from the technology side. But I think the uh, the question that I was asking myself, which I suspect is a question that many of your developers, especially in large uh, companies, might be asking themselves, uh, especially companies that are not responsible for developing software, but developing IT systems for internal use. The question I asked myself, especially at IBM, was, you know, I spent a lot of time working on a lot of projects, and I think I did a great job. I really feel like the work that I did was very good. We did a good job on the software application architecture. Uh, The systems ran well, they ran fast, and yet ultimately they failed. And I saw that over and over again, you know, things that we had done a lot of work on that ultimately failed in the sense that they were either not deployed or they were deployed, but they didn't really meet the need or, or things like that. And I think the problem that I, uh, what I eventually concluded about all that was that a lot of the reasons that systems fail, and if you look at, you know, failure from the, from the perspective of cost, uh, this is by far the largest cost of software systems today is the failure of these systems. Uh, why did these systems fail? Why did they, you know, if we did a good job, 
why didn't the systems go out and do something that was important? And invariably, the reason was that these systems were not well-matched to business requirements and business need. Now, that wasn't my responsibility. In these projects, I was a technical lead, a technical architect and applications architect, and we did a good job. But still, you know, it's kind of unsatisfying to do a really good job and then not see the systems deployed and really becoming important uh, value-producing components for the organization. So you built the software they asked for, it just wasn't the software they wanted. Well, we built the software that we were asked for. Now, the question is, who is they? Yeah, who's asking what? Yeah. Now, frequently, the they that was asking us to build systems were managers on the technical side. They were higher-up people in the technical uh, organization. You know, at IBM, they might be somebody who's like a VP of software organization. You know, that kind of trickles down. But they typically were not being driven by real business needs. And what you see over and over again is that most developers, certainly probably all developers, almost all developers, and a large percentage of architects, especially application architects, really are not plugged into the business side of their organization. Mm. And uh, if we don't solve that problem, then, you know, we can we can turn our wheels and produce the best software in the world, and it's not going to go anyplace. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we should be bothering us, I think. Roger, is it a problem? Is part of the problem the hierarchical nature of companies, where you know the 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 people you really need to talk to are are often you know so busy working on the on their projects and their and their code that uh, or, or or the business you know is there a problem is the problem with hierarchies is I guess I don't think the problem is with hierarchies as much as it's with specializations. You know, most large companies you have people who are specialized in the business side people who are specialized in the technology side. And uh, most people think that's the right way to run things. You know, you have groups that really understand technology, groups that really understand business. Mm. And I think that what we're starting to understand now is that if we don't marry those two groups together, we're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. And there's more and more writing that's being done by and for CIOs, for example, Mm. that's uh, talking about the challenge of getting IT people to understand more about business. Now, if you think about the typical developer who has a degree in computer science, the chances are they have little or no training and even the most rudimentary uh, concepts about business. Well, do they Uh, they need to know how to run a business, or do they need to know what their business is? I think they need to know a little of all of those things, and I think that there are other things that they need to know as well, like how do you communicate to a business person. If you've ever watched a most technical people trying to explain to a business person why they need something, Mm. it's going to be a conversation filled with acronyms, and within the first 10 words, you can watch the business person's eyes glaze over. Right. You know, and they have no interest in what this person is talking about. They've totally discounted this person as being somebody who can give them useful advice. And, you know, that becomes a business problem and a technology problem. It becomes an impediment to producing good technology that's driving business value. So enterprise architecture is really the discipline of architectures trying to address this problem. It's the discipline that's trying to bring together these two groups so that, we, so that when we produce technology, we're producing technology that's delivering business value. We've always encouraged our listeners to, and on more than one occasion, to to take a little bit of time to really understand the company they're working for, the the business model that their company uses, because um, that, that's ultimately going to make you a better developer. It will. And, um, you know, my partner, Beverly Bammel here, has done training in business concepts for developers. And it's, it's just always amazing to us um, how much of a difference that makes. Just something like, how do, how do you make a five-minute presentation to a business crowd? How do you do that? What's the difference between doing that and a technology crowd? It's a little bit off topic, but, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the issue of how do we bring these two groups together. Now, one of the things that's, that, uh, so that's kind of the general background to what's driving a lot of these problems. Now, and another problem has been uh, getting worse and worse lately, which is exasperating this whole issue, and that is the problem of complexity. So what we're seeing now is that business processes are becoming much more complex. There's this whole assumption that organizations are going to be collaborating with their people that not too long ago were considered their competitors and now suddenly are considered their partners. Uh, companies are merging with new companies. Uh, custom, uh, companies are forming very tight relationships with their customers. 
all of these things are making the business process side of things much, much more complicated than it was a decade ago. And on the technology side, you know, I don't have to tell you about all the complexity. There's, sure. you know, there's whole web services, there's workflow, there's all kinds of things that a decade ago we didn't know anything about. You know, we, it wasn't that long ago that we were all writing single-user applications for DOS machines. You know, the world is totally different now. So on the technology side, the technology has become very complicated. On the business side, the business has become very complicated. And this has really exasperated the disconnect between these two groups. You know, they both have to spend so much time trying to understand their own area. And even within their own area, they're typically over-specialized. That the idea of getting these two groups together is, is very difficult. So um, I think that we need two things to start to address this problem. First of all, we need to have a commitment that we're going to bring these two groups together, that that is what our vision is for our organization. It's a collaborative effort between our IT side and our business side. That's kind of the fundamental uh, mantra of enterprise architecture. But beyond that, we need to start to get a handle on the complexity. So an enterprise architecture that doesn't specifically address complexity as an overriding problem uh, is bound to fail. And that's kind of where I've been really focusing is on understanding uh, what what does really what does complexity mean? We all kind of uh, recognize complexity when we see it, but until we have a model for complexity that's really grounded in mathematics, we don't have anything that we can take a architecture to and say, is this a complex architecture or a simple architecture, a good architecture, a bad architecture? An analogy that I often use is um, if you were going to do a moonshot, you're going to send a rocket to the moon. It would never occur you to you to do a moonshot without taking into account the mathematical models for gravity, for planetary motion, and all those things. And you would make sure that everything you were doing was lined up with those mathematical models before you ever um, even you know, put your rocket on the launch pad. Long right. before you got to that point, you would have taken into account all these mathematical models. Yeah. If you were building a bridge, for example, you would never lay the... You wouldn't touch the ground until you had subjected your architecture the mathematical models for stress and load and make sure that all the components within the bridge, as best you could predict from that mathematical model, were going to work. That disconnect, is, that disconnect is really brought to life, you know, when you hear the jokes about, you know, if Microsoft made cars, you know, <laughs> exactly. it makes us realize how imprecise sometimes software development can be. But bridge building wasn't always like that. There was a time when a bunch of guys got together, grabbed some logs, and said, we can get across the river with Absolutely. this. Absolutely, and, and they could. And it wasn't until we started building, you know, like eight-lane highway bridges and things that had to support large numbers of people and had to span more than maybe 50 feet that things started getting were. complicated. Well, you and always think of the, the old enterprise. Tacoma Narrows event, right? Exactly, the... yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there are plenty of enterprises that don't need to worry about complexity today. You know, they're small shops. They're not big organizations. Uh, everybody knows everybody. And, you know, for them, complexity is not a big issue. They're very, very focused. But if you have a uh, an organization that's large enough that's starting to think about the issues of enterprise architectures, uh, you know, like a Microsoft or an IBM or a General or a Ford or, uh, you know, McDonald's or, or Walmart or any of these kind of organizations, they've got a tremendous amount of complexity to deal with. They need to worry about enterprise architecture because they need to make sure that these two groups are working in close uh, harmony together and they need to address the issues of complexity or they'll, and they need models of complexity so that they can start to ask the kind of questions that you would ask about a bridge or a moon launch. Does this architecture work? Before I start writing code. I'm curious, when you're talking about battling complexity, does the battle begin any time you see complexity right there, or is complexity something that you address after the fact? You know, because uh, I think you, that you, neither of those is true. I think that you start addressing complexity before you have anything. When you have nothing is when you should start addressing complexity. Because what you need to do is complexity is something that is the very first thing you should tackle. It's more important than security. It's more important than performance. It's more important than interoperability. It's more important than agility. It's much more important than any of those things because if you don't have complexity managed, you're never going to be able to do the rest of those things. And it really starts it. with the four words, can we buy this, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I think it even <laughs> comes to an even uh, more fundamental four words, which is should I buy this? Okay. <laughs> Should we be do doing this at all? Yeah. You know? So, you know, complexity <laughs> starts at the beginning and it never ends because even if you do come up with a system which is architecturally 
you know, simple or simpler than another architecture, it will rapidly deteriorate into a more complex architecture unless ongoing steps are taken to to manage the uh, complexity. So it, it happens at all phases, from the beginning right through to the end. Hey, do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, Web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast, compact, and very easy to deploy with a mere X-copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun. It's interesting. And it can get you a free license or a new monitor. I'm thinking about enterprise architecture, what you've said so far, and thinking, you know, a piece of this sounded vaguely agile-like, but it also seems like a lot of requirements gathering. Uh, and I'm just trying to pull to my mind together the idea that architecture requirements gathering are, are that closely tied. Uh, I think that they are, you know, especially if we're talking about requirements as business requirements, you know what we if you look at a lot of uh, software architectures and you look at the requirements they're often not business value driven and i think that what we need to focus on is requirements that are value driven that we can and that are also measurable so we can actually come back later and say did we or did we not meet this requirement many requirements that you see today you know they don't have that kind of measurability built into them you know they'll be very vague like well we want to um you know, in, improve profitability or something like that. So, I mean, ultimately, should, shouldn't should every software requirement ultimately derive from a business requirement? Does that anything else make sense? Uh, I think that that's largely true. I think that um, what you want to do is you want to start with your business requirements, then you want to look at your software requirements, and there should be, as you say, a direct traceability of one to the other. So if you have a software requirement that's not driven by a business requirement, it shouldn't be there. Right. And, um, you know, we see that over and over again. You'll see software requirements all over the place that have nothing whatsoever to do with business value. And uh, those are not things that should be part of a value-driven architecture. I mean, a good example of this would be somebody is arguing about whether they should use the .NET or the J2EE platform or some J2EE platform. You know, and there'll be all kinds of arguments about one, why, why we should use one or why we should use the other. And they're never driven by business. They're, they're driven by, you know, by gut feelings, by intuition, by, by somebody likes one, doesn't like the other, hates this company, doesn't hate that company, things mm. like that. They've got nothing to do with business value. It sounds very domain-driven uh, philosophically. Yeah, yes, I think so. Uh, you know, it's not that these other decisions aren't going to have their role to play, but they come into a much lower level. They're really what I consider to be implementation decisions, not architectural decisions. So, you know, the enterprise architecture is going to have, is going to really tie the business value to the technology. And then there's going to be some implementation decisions that are really at a lower level. And they're going to be things like, you know, are we going to use, you know, this make more sense to use .NET or, or WebSphere in this particular application. Now, I'm just starting to think of what is the business discussion you could have around picking a framework like that? Is it come down to cost? These are the skills that I have in my organization now, so it'll be cheaper to use those existing skills than to hire new ones. I think that those are those are valid um, discussion points, but again, I would uh, I would argue that they're not really architectural discussion points as much as right. uh, application architecture or lower level. They really shouldn't be coming into the enterprise architecture. The enterprise architecture could be that we want our systems to interoperate, so you know, what we need to do is figure out what is the infrastructure that's going to allow that to happen and how much infrastructure, infrastructure do we need. And one of the things that's important at the 
at the application architecture, you're typically looking at how many things you need to agree on. At the enterprise level, frequently what you should be doing is trying to figure out how few things do you need to agree on. Mm, because it's, good point. it's actually the, the fewer things you have to agree on, the easier it is going to be to get agreement. And in fact, you have to get agreement on your whole company that, you know, we're going to use only .NET from here on out. That's going to be a painful, painful decision to come to. You're going to waste a lot of time on that decision. And in the end, you're going to fail because in the end, you're going to have multiple uh, platforms. Yeah, there's just no way to get away from that. Right. So, so at an enterprise level, what's a better question to ask is let's agree to disagree on that. Let's just from the beginning realize that we're going to disagree on that and figure out what does that drive from an enterprise architecture. We need these things to interoperate. We're agreeing that we're not going to be able to agree on this, so what do we do about it? And what we do about it is we, you know, we come up with standards for how these different technologies will work together, which is what we need. We don't need them to all be .NET or all be WebSphere. What we need them to do is be able to work together where that makes sense. Right. And that's the proper enterprise architecture. Another example, uh, a lot of companies waste a lot of time trying to decide how the database is going to be organized. They have this vision that, um, that there's going to be one database which totally defines the whole company and everything's going to be put in there. It's going to be in perfectly normalized form you know, from a relational database perspective. And there's going to be one standard data model. I've seen many, many companies oh, man. try to take that approach. I have You're never bringing seen back horrible memories, Roger. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen anybody be successful with that. The so. perfect customer record. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I've seen companies where they, where they will spend months arguing about the customer record. And what, right. what I do is I say, it doesn't matter. Let the different applications store customers the way they want to. What we need to agree on is how they're going to uh, pass information around about customers and how our corporate knowledge base about customers is going to be presented to us. Those are the things that we need to worry about. We don't need to agree on how the database is organized. So, you know, that's part of this. It's actually uh, part of this whole mathematical, which is based on that mathematical model, which is based on partitioning. Partitioning says that you've got two different elements. If those elements are in different partitions, then they should agree on virtually nothing other than the very basics about how they're going to communicate. And, you know, data would be a good example of something that we don't need to agree on on an enterprise architecture. And yet many enterprise architectural groups think that they need to worry about the whole data level. They shouldn't even be talking about that stuff. You, do you, you find that a lot of, uh, you know, developers who aren't sort of schooled in architecture like to get it down to the implementation while you're doing this architectural overview um, because they think that some of, you know, whatever tools that they choose would influence the architecture, well, not I think the other that, way around. Uh, I think there's a lot of confusion about implementation and architecture. And, uh, you know, part of this is that we don't really have a lot of formal definitions for what an architecture is. And um, part of it, especially in the Microsoft space, this is probably even a bigger issue than it is um, in, like, the WebSphere space, for example. The Microsoft space is very traditionally been very developer-driven. So things tend to get driven in the Microsoft area from the bottom up rather than from the top down, which means, right. you know, basically, and if you look historically, uh, there's been a lot of confusion in Microsoft about what is the difference between architecture and implementation. Even now, you will frequently see uh, material on Microsoft websites which purports to be about architecture, which is really about implementation and developer-focused. Uh, they're doing a much better job than that they were doing five years ago. But even now, you know, it's a it's a it's a problem. I think. And I can see why Microsoft tends to uh, be in the bottom up approach because Absolutely. they have That's... such a good job working with developers and, and, and cultivating the community. It it ultimately is in their best interest to push up. And and I I see enough businesses that recognize, hey, these are what my guys want. I'm going to give it to them because mm-hmm. that way they'll be productive. Yeah, that's what they do. The alternative is to fire them and hire people who work with the uh, the, the technology that the architect decides is the right one. Right. And now, I think that what Microsoft is starting to recognize is that many of the technologies that they are trying to sell today have to be sold differently than they were sold even five years ago. Five years ago, most of what Microsoft made uh, could be sold by pushing it from the developers on up. Today, that's not really true. Microsoft is really focusing on enterprise-wide databases. Sure. Um, 
you know, major workflow engines. Yeah, the product that technology. leaps out to me would be BizTalk. Exactly. Like I don't BizTalk. see developers grabbing BizTalk. Well, no. whether they grab it or not, they're not going to be the ones making a decision on BizTalk. Right. The decision from BizTalk is going to be influenced from the top down, not from the bottom up. And Microsoft, you know, is starting to get that message, but, you know, it's been a long time, and they're, and they're still... They're still having trouble with it, I think. But but the message has to be that uh, you need to get mind share at the CIO level, the CTO level, and that's an area that Microsoft has traditionally had a very done a very poor job of um, taking any ownership in. IBM does a great job of that. Are developers addicted to code? Well, uh, developers are are addicted to you know to geeky stuff which is generally, you know, something that looks like code or does something cool on the screen. <laughs> Bright, <laughs> shiny lights. Another. Exactly. Yeah, we all are. But um, <laughs> Blinky lights. Yeah, but... Um, I like it. You know, they don't like to think about profitability. They don't like to think about business value. They rarely, in most large organizations, they rarely talk to the person who's actually going to be using their systems. Yeah, this came... Uh, really into focus on our show when we watched Billy Hollis's Grok Talk, which you probably don't know about. But he basically said that developers are addicted to code. You know, the the at they're addicts. They need to write code and if the uh, technology comes around that makes them write less code, they're not gonna like it. You know, they want <laughs> test driven development so they can write more code and you know what the addict does when they need to get their fix, they do a few lines. Right. Well, it's probably true. Now, I don't yeah. think that enterprise architecture is taking anything away from the amount of code that needs to be written. No, no, no. Um, but you know what? Came, well, the reason I thought of that was BizTalk is one of those things that replaces a lot of plumbing code that would be a really a lot of fun to write. Well, that's true. Yeah. In fact, you can see that you know every developer you've seen over and over again where developers insist that they can do a better job writing the database than the database vendors did. And it's just because they want to. Yeah, yeah. or well, yeah. The, the, my favorite one was the, okay, first thing we need to do is build ourselves a framework. Yeah. Yeah. And implement all the pieces of it. Right. Which, yeah. i got to admit, is a fun thing to do. Oh, yeah, it is fun. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it might not, not make the most business sense. It makes no business sense. You know, it makes no business sense whatsoever. I'm back to hanging on to BizTalk because, you know, a developer looking at a given problem can't justify BizTalk on that problem. Mm-hmm. It has to be someone higher up looking down at a bunch of problems that says, hey, we can solve 80% of these mm-hmm. with BizTalk. And the biggest Absolutely. complaint I hear about BizTalk guys is always the thing's so expensive. But when you actually put together that ROI of that sheer volume of code you're eliminating, it's not. actually it's pretty cheap. Yeah, but it has to be driven basically uh, at a CIO level or pretty close to that. Is it is is it actually at the CIO level, or is, can an architect make this call when we talk about know. enterprise architects? Uh, I think that you know generally, if you're looking at something like BizTalk, you're probably looking at somebody a direct report of a um, of a CIO or a CTO, I would say. Right. Pretty close to that. Now, you know, the larger the organization, you know, the more the more um, uh, flexibility there is there. But in lo- many large organizations, large bank, that's probably where you're looking at it. Right. And, of course, this is still an implementation angle. It's not actually enterprise architecture. It's looking at how we're going to put this together. Right. What are the pieces we can buy to facilitate it? Mm-hmm. So that's a fair ways down the path. We're still trying to get that organized. It is. But the problem, uh, and and even though that is a fair way down the path from thinking about enterprise architecture and thinking about business value, that's the direction it's coming from. You know, it's coming from the people who understand business need. And um, until until you've engaged them and you convince them, now I'm kind of pointedly talking at Microsoft here. You know, if you're trying to sell BizTalk and you haven't, convince the CIO that you understand the CIO's pain and the CTO's pain and what their issues are and what their struggles are, and you don't have a relationship with this person, then you're going to have a very difficult time selling something like BizTalk. You can tell, you can sell Visual Studio, you can sell that, but you're not going to be able to sell something like uh, BizTalk, and you're going to have a tough time even selling SQL Server to a lesser extent. SQL Server is a more partitioned project product. Well, Roger, can we talk a little bit now about the mathematical model of complexity that you've developed? Sure. Um, a little hard without a whiteboard. I'll have to, I'll have to imagine <laughs> it's scribble on a whiteboard here. But basically, it's, there's a, uh, 
there's a whole uh, area of mathematics called set theory, which most people have probably heard of. It goes back to you remember the Venn diagrams with the um, overlapping bubbles, and there's right. Yeah, all the overlapping circles. The, the overlapping databases circles. lived here too. Uh, it does yeah? It can be, and a lot of those things can kind of come into set theory. Has a lot of applications. So the basic idea is that uh, in, within set theory, you can have a, a large set of things, like a universe of things, whatever those things are, and um, you can divide them into subsets. And if those subsets have certain characteristics, which are provable, you can prove that they do or don't have those these characteristics then you can say that those subsets are a, uh, a set of partitions. Okay? And a set of partitions is essentially a set of, subs- uh, a set of subsets in which every element in the universe lives in one and only one of those subsets. If you remember that much about set theory, you're, mm. you're halfway there. And anyway, what we want to do is we want to reduce the complexity of things by partitioning things. And uh, if you look at um, if you look at complexity, if you want to just understand how do you measure complexity, one way you can measure complexity is by how many states a given system can find itself in. Uh, an example I often give is if you have a machine that's going to read penny tosses, there are only two states it can find itself in: the penny's heads or the penny's tails. If you add one more state to it, one more uh, set of variables to it to also read dime tosses, now you've got four states: penny can be heads. Tails can be heads. I mean, the dime can be heads. The penny can be heads. The dime can be tails. You know, and so and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Basically, as you add more variables and more state possibilities to it, you increase the complexity. If you were to look at those two programs side by side, lines of code, you'd find one has twice the number of lines of code. Probably, it would take you twice as long to do an inspection of the program, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, um, so if you accept that basic premise, that you can. Um, uh, that that states has something to do with complexity in systems, then you can also show that by partitioning the state into different subsets, subsets which are mathematical partitions, you dramatically reduce the complexity of the overall system. It's a little bit hard to explain without having a whiteboard, being able to draw the numbers. Yeah, right? say, say that one again. That's important, I think. You know, so let me just ask you this hypothetical question. If we had a program with 12 variables, each of which could have six different states, how many states can that have? It doesn't seem like there would be a lot, but if you actually think about it, uh, the answer to that turns out to be the number of states raised to the power of the number of variables. So that turns out to be six states. We have six states per variable, right? And we have 12 variables, so it comes to six to the 12. Six to the 12 is a little over 2 billion. Ouch. Wow. So a program with 12 variables, each of which can have six states, has 2 billion plus possible states. Now, supposing you compare that system to another system that has two programs, each of which has six variables, each of which can take six states. Got that so far? Mm-hmm. Same number of variables, 12 variables in both cases, but now we've got them divided into two independent programs. Right, so now we take six to the sixth plus six, six to the sixth. Six. six to the sixth is about 46,000. But we've got two programs. You have to multiply it by two. That gives us about ninety thousand. Wow. So if you if you mm. believe that the number of states in the program is somehow related to the complexity, okay, then the one program with twelve variables has a complexity value, whatever that means exactly, of about two billion, and the two program system, which has exactly the same number of variables with exactly the same number of states has a complexity ratio of about 90,000. The ratio between 90,000 and 2 billion is, over one, is less than 1%. So it sort of brings the SOA argument back into clear focus. It, 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 it is, in a sense, it's, a, it's very compatible with the SOA because where SOAs have done a good job and they're really well partitioned and they're not just a, you know, a, a miserable architecture you know, because you can you, having a web service in itself doesn't solve this problem, but it is a very simpatico with this. If you do a good job with partitioning, you do a good job with service-oriented architecture, you've got two things which are very simpatico. So this whole idea of managing complexity plays perfectly into SOAs as long as they understand what the issues are. But, of course, you have a lot of um, SOA architectures, for example. Let me just give you a common 
scenario that violates this whole thing. Supposing you've got two SOA architectures that both mingle their databases at a lower level. Ooh. Suddenly you have a non-partitioned system. It may look partitioned at a high level when you're looking down on it, but if you're looking at the guts, it's not a partitioned system. You've got data that's being shared. You've got database records that are being updated, and you can't tell who updated them. That's a non-partitioned system. So, Dependencies is you know. what we're talking about. Yes. Yes, uh, and so so this is kind of the whole mathematical, um, the basic idea. Now, once you get to this point and you accept for the fact that that even a small number of true partitions, and true is really a key word here, partitioning, you know, not, not um, you know, wimpy partitions, true, true partitions. We, <laughs> you know, we need to understand technically what that means. Um, but if you have those, it doesn't take a lot of partitions to tremendously reduce the complexity of the overall system. I mean, here you've seen an example. We're just going from one to two partitions. You know, we've reduced the complexity by 99%. Right. Now, even if you assume that that's like a, oh, you know, that's overly generous because maybe there was some partitioning because they had some idea about object-oriented programming, there was a little bit of partitioning going on. You know, even if we're off by a factor of, you know, 10, it's still a, um, a tenfold reduction on complexity, 90%. So, you know, there's tremendous opportunities, and, you know, that's a, a matter of reducing the cost of the system. It's a matter of um, giving us the opportunity to better make sure that we're delivering real business value because suddenly we've got, you know, these less complex systems. With less complex systems, they're easier to talk about, easier to look at and on the business side. All these issues become a lot easier to deal with. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Now I think the key to this whole thing has got to be understanding what the partition means because it's not just SOA-type separations, but no, like not. you said, object orientation, just creating a good class. In fact, in fact, I would argue that object orientation is the worst partitioning technology we have. Oh, really? Because it allows hard. all this interdependency between exactly. objects. Because you start uh, in introducing the idea of inheritance and overriding and you know methods which are done in base classes and how do they impact this class. True partitioning is very difficult to do. I would say that most object-oriented systems do a horrible job of partitioning. That's because most developers are interested in reusability, uh, you know, as a as a just a mantra. Exactly. You know, we want to re be able to reuse this and reuse this and right. use this and make it to, you know but, dependent. But on to reuse things. something at the expense of introducing complexity is unacceptable. Com complex reducing complexity is much more important than reusing code. It is the most important thing, and that's the fundamental <laughs> message. Can the two be compatible? I mean, can you do both? Uh, you can. Um, you can do both. I yes, mean, I'm thinking can. of simple refactorings where a block of code exists over here, and it also exists over here. The same code, putting those together and making a absolutely In two fact, places that, that call the know, same code. Well-designed service-oriented architectures are all about reuse. But it's a different kind of reuse than we traditionally think of. Traditionally, when we think of reuse, we're thinking of, you know, reusing APIs or libraries or base classes and derived classes, things like that. That's what an object-oriented programmer thinks about as reuse. But when we think about it from the perspective of service-oriented architectures, uh, reuse means that there's a blob of code out there that I can ask to do something for me that I don't need to write. Right. And I don't care if it runs on .NET or WebSphere. It doesn't matter to me. I know how to call it. I know how to make the request. Mm. And That's it's got that of... strong partition around it so that we know we, we can't, we're not creating dependencies when we right. work with it. Exactly. That is reuse and partitioning put together. In an object-oriented approach to reuse, you don't have any partitioning. And, and reuse without partitioning is a failed, uh, a failed approach, in my I, opinion. I really find this... Now, you know, I'm talking about highly complex projects. I'm not, you know, there's a lot of simple little things where you can get away with that stuff. But if you're talking about complex projects or multi-million dollar projects, you know, uh, hundreds of person um, years of effort, you can't approach them that way. I really find this conversation fascinating because I honestly have not ever considered 
software in complexity in that way before? Well, it's a new way of thinking about it because there's been a lot of discussion about complexity. A lot of people have talked about it, but nobody has introduced a mathematical model that will allow you to really test proposed architectures against it. Now, we haven't gotten that far into the mathematical model. Let me carry you a little bit further into it as okay. best we can, you know, within the uh, constraints that we're under. Right. Um, but there's another mathematical concept because partitioning is really good, but how do you, how do you prove that something is well partitioned or isn't well partitioned? How mm. can you prove that this variable should live here rather than over here? This functionality should really go with this as opposed to that. What's the mathematical basis for making that decision? or proving that you've made a good decision or that you can make a better decision. Okay, so there's this other field of mathematics which is very closely associated with this, which is called equivalence relations. Now, that's something that uh, many fewer people are kind of familiar with. They don't remember that as well. There are three properties that are requirements of all equivalence relations. One is reflexivity, which means that an element is always related to itself. One is symmetry, which says that if one element is related to another, that other element is also related to the first. I'll give you some examples of this in a second. And the transitivity says that if element A is related to B and B is related to C, then A is also related to C. You don't have to prove that. That can be assumed. Okay. But here's an example. Okay. Let's say you've got a store which has 10 items in it, and you've got each one of those items has a cost associated with it. Okay. Uh, the, if you were to say that the equivalence relation costs the same as, you could prove that that is an equivalence relation because all three of those requirements are met. Okay, like if you have an element, if you have something that costs a dollar, like let's say cereal, a box of cereal costs a dollar, uh, it's, it's always going to be true that a box of cereal costs the same as a box of cereal, right? That's yeah. Reflexivity. Uh, tra uh, symmetry says that if cereal costs the same as a pen, then the pen also costs the same as cereal. Okay. Right, that's symmetry. And then transitivity says that if cereal costs a dollar and pens cost a dollar and soda costs a dollar, then cereals, if cereal costs the same as pens, they both cost a dollar, and pens cost the same as, what did I say? Cere uh, uh, soda. <laughs> soda. Uh, they both cost a dollar. Then the first one, cereal, costs the same as soda. You don't right. need to prove that. You can assume that, you know, based on the fact that you know that costs the same as an equivalence relation. Okay, so... It gives you kind of a basic sense of equivalence relation. Now, it turns out okay. that equivalence relations can be used to drive partitions. In the store example, you could use the what I've just basically proven is an equivalence relation, which is cost the same as, because it has the three properties of equivalence relations. Mm -hmm. Right. Cost the same as can be used to partition the store. It may or may not be an intelligent partition, but it is a partition. So, for example, if you take all the elements that cost a dollar, and all the elements that cost 50 cents, and all the elements that cost 75 cents, you're going to end up with a partition. No element is going to live in more than one of those subsets. Right. And everyone will live in it, one of those subsets. That's the definition of a partition. So it turns out that there is a relationship between uh, equivalence relations and partitions, in that any given equivalence relation can be used to drive a unique partition. There's only one partition that can be developed as a result of applying a particular equivalence relation. Huh. So I know we're getting into some, you know, kind of scary-sounding math here, and, you know, it's, a, it's kind of simpler when you can write it out and you can do it on whiteboards, but the sure. basic point is that you can find equivalence relations that drive partitions, and in the enterprise architecture space, the one that I would say is um, the driving equivalence relation is going to be what we would call synergistic at two elements, if they are synergistic with each other, they each require the other to be useful. We can prove, and we can't really do that in this context, but take my, you know, this is my, um, this is my claim, that we can prove that that is an equivalence relation that can therefore drive partitions. And what's interesting about those particular partitions is that those particular partitions turn out to be the optimal partitions from the perspective of enterprise architectures. So not only do we have a mathematical approach to producing enterprise architectures or partitioned enterprise architectures, but we have a mathematical approach which can be provably as the best possible partitions that we can create, which is a very remarkable result. 
And I can also see what the failure modes would look like then is when you don't have complete equivalence, mm-hmm. uh, like a dependency relationship would lurk like that, where, exactly. where they may be reflexive and symmetric, but they're not transitive. Mm-hmm. So you're not able to uh, to actually make those, uh, it, those separations of the partition reliably. You always have to have the other element in. Right, exactly. And then once you've done that, then you have reduced your partitioning, you've reduced your autonomy, and you've tremendously increased your complexity. Right. You've, you've actually, it's a false partition. Those two things are actually right. in one partition. Right. If, if you have a false partition, then you don't have a partition. And we have a lot of those in our technology. And that's one of our technical challenges is to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, we don't break down the walls of the partition through our technical approaches to architectures. So, you know, I realize this is a lot, and, um, but, but the important points here that I'd really like to leave you with are that, that we can approach enterprise architecture from a mathematical perspective. We don't have to just approach it from a gut feel perspective. Oh, you know, I think that one looks better than this one, or, you know, I think this one's going to better meet the business needs. They're actually a mathematical model that we can build these enterprise architectures against. And these mathematical models are based on partitions. Partitions are closer related to equivalence relations. And equivalence relations can be used to not only find a partition, but to find the best possible partition. That's going to, and by best, I mean reduce the complexity as much as possible without running into dependencies of the programs themselves. Because, you know, you can't, obviously, you just can't tear these things apart indefinitely. You know, you'd have, you can't tear it down so you have no more than one variable in every program. There's some point where you've got dependencies there. So I, don't know. I think a, Turing would like us to do that, but yeah. that's a different issue. And I, and I could see that you could certainly build object-oriented models that were well-partitioned. Absolutely. It's just that the tool doesn't do that intrinsically. Not only that, but the, there's an intrinsic um, discrepancy between those things. There's actually an antagonistic relationship. And if you don't recognize that, then you're going to fall into the trap of building non-partitioned programs that are great object-oriented systems but are very poorly partitioned. And that's what most people do. Have you ever heard of the Swiss historian Jakob Burkhardt? Um, I don't think so. He, he has a quote that is interesting to me, which is a little counterintuitive right now. The essence of tyranny is the denial of complexity. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll to figure out what that means. I'm trying to figure it out right now. You know, and what, it's really odd how I figured this out. I was just, I had my IM open, right? And you know how people have their little messages they want you to, they want you to see in their IM name. And, uh, one of my friends has this quote. And so while you guys were just talking, I Googled it and I found it's attributed to this Swiss historian. Hmm. Now, the denial of complexity would really be. The essence of tyranny is what he says. Right. So and so, what we mean by denial of complexity is saying that something isn't complicated when it is? Yeah, I think so. Because I think that until we recognize not only what complexity is, but what the insidious effects of complexity are, you know, we're, we're going to be at the mercy. We either recognize complexity and understand how to address it, or we're at the mercy of complexity, and we don't even know it. So he's really think, saying, you know, don't be black and white. Yeah, don't thinking. try, don't do the us, uh, you're either with us or against us thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. The reality is that, yeah, and this is, and and the, and we were just talking about this, Roger. We were saying, hey, you know what? Object orientation isn't inherently bad. No, it's not. It's just conducive to bad behavior. You, you can use it well. Yeah, but you have to know how, and you have to understand, you know, when you can use it and when you can't use it. It's a great tool as long as you've got. You know, really good partitions there. I mean, one of the kind of analogies I'm thinking of is that, you know, on our property, we've got this three and a half acres here, um, and we're planning on putting some bamboo in to, um, to provide a shield between the house and the road. Right. Okay. Bamboo is a great shield, kind of like object-oriented program. It's a really great <laughs> uh, thing. And like object-oriented program, it tends to send out these insidious roots. Now, the problem with bamboo is that if you don't partition that stuff really, really carefully, it'll take over your whole property. <laughs> and you have to partition it by putting down these, like, four-foot uh, steel barriers so that the roots can't get beyond that. The roots can only go down to, like, four feet or something like that. So, you know, object-oriented programs are exactly like that. If you don't have these really strong uh, partitions in there, 
you're going to end up with basically these objects that are kind of, you know, insidiously putting out their little feelers all over the place and growing up in ways where they shouldn't be growing. You know, uh, what's the other stuff? Kudzu is like that. Exactly. And uh, up here <laughs> in the... Nobody, except kudzu is not good for anything. Right, up here in the north... <laughs> Right, except I guess you can eat it, though. You can make salads out of it, according to Alton Brown. But um, up here in the Northeast, we also have bittersweet, which is another insidious plant that yeah. gets all strangles trees and everything. Um, you know, and, and just, you know, while we're at a lighthearted moment here, I also want to, you were talking about set theory before, and I can't let this go. Mark Miller has a great rant about set theory as it applies to linens and things. <laughs> Which is a store that sells linens and things. And he says, he was pointing out the screwed up nature of that name. Cause anybody with a kindergarten based education knows that when you take the union of the infinite set things with the a member of that set linens, the result is things, the infinite set. <laughs> he says the store should just be called things. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> And the inverse of that, like uh, the intersection of linens and, and things, would be uh, the null set, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just screwed up. That is weird. Oh man! All right, gentlemen, we're coming towards the end of the show here. Can we tie this all together somehow? Well, it all comes down to you know we need models for understanding complexity. Complexity is first of all got to be seen as job number one. That's something that's got to go. Every architect. In fact, I often think that the job of a developer is to introduce complexity and the job of an architect is to eliminate it. Nice. Very nice. And on that note, Roger Sessions, thank you. Wow, this has been a mind-blowing conversation. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very, very delighted that you were on the show today. And I hope that people will feel free to come to the website and see some of the papers I'm going to be having on this whole topic. And the uh, website is objectwatch.com. Objectwatch.com. Excellent. Thank you, Roger. Been great. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, listeners. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. On .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a